for a week. We visited our church, a masterpiece, our new church plant in Levine, and had a nice time fellowshipping with them. Then we spent a few days in San Diego, and we're glad to be back, where it's nice and warm. Uh, in the desert, uh, we love uh, being in the desert. So, uh, I want to say thank you uh, to you for a couple of things, very significant things. The first is this. On Christmas morning, many of you came to help prepare food for the homeless. And from what Carol's told me, you did an amazing job, especially the children helping out. And, um, and there wasn't, it was unclear kind of where the food was going to go after that, but you need to know that uh, God found a place for each and every one of those meals for people that really needed it. And on behalf of our church and specifically Carol, who headed up this initiative, I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for your great work on Christmas morning uh, feeding the homeless. Uh, you did a wonderful job, and I want to thank you for that. Another thank, is, thank you is from our entire staff. Uh, you generously uh, took an offering for us and gave us wonderful gifts uh, and we will really tell you how much we appreciate that. So from David and Scott and Brian and Barb and myself, we want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for your generosity. And also our support staff, Pat and Susan and Mike, and want to thank you as well for your uh, gifts. Now, not all of the gifts were completely appreciated. Uh, I did have a, 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 a card on my desk on Christmas Eve, has a cat on the front of it. And uh, I want to tell you what on the, is on the inside before I open it. It um, it says to all the cat lovers from Hope Covenant Church, you know, and they wish me a, a Merry Christmas. But when you open it up, yeah, right, yeah. Well, thank you even for the the Christmas card. But uh, the new year brings a lot of um, new things in our lives. And uh, because I've been thinking about, you know, my future and our future, Sherry and I, what God has for us in the future, that last verse in the video, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, God says, I know I have, the pl- I have plans for you. I-, I believe that. But things have changed so much. I mean, I remember New Year's days years ago, and they seemed to be uh, just the greatest and the most wonderful. And we still feel that way today. But times have changed and many of us have changed as well. Um, in fact, uh, reflecting back, let's say 35 years ago, how things have changed in 35 years. January 1, 1976, January 2, 2011. Let me give you some changes that you've all experienced. Maybe not all of you, but some of you experienced. For instance, in 1976, long hair was in. 19, 2011, at least for me, longing for hair. So that's a whole different kind of thing. 1976, acid rock. You remember that? 2011, acid reflux. So again, uh, as we get older, things change. Uh, 1976, moving to California because it's cool, right? 2011, moving to Arizona because it's warm. Uh, That's different. 1976, seeds and stems. How many remember Yule Gibbons? Okay, you're old if you do. Uh, 2011, roughage. 1976, hoping for a BMW. Now you know what's coming. 2011, hoping for a BM. Uh, 1976, going to a new hip joint like in Los Angeles. 2011, at least for me, receiving a new hip joint. 
1976, the Rolling Stones. 2011, Kidney Stones. Actually, still the Rolling Stones, right? And 1976, Disco. 2011, Costco. So things change uh, fairly dramatically, but I want to wish each and every one of you a very happy new year. May this year be the best year you've ever experienced financially, relationally, vocationally, emotionally, and especially spiritually. The new sermon series I want to lay out before you uh, during the outset of this New Year's in 2011 is simply our vision stated in a brand new way. And that way that we are showing you on these videos and uh, we will lay out in the next few weeks is simply this. It's personal. Uh, The theme for this year and the theme for this sermon series is it's personal. Now, you might ask, well, what does that mean? When you read the Bible and, and take it seriously, like many of us do, by the way, how many of you finished reading through the Bible in 2010? Raise your hands. All right. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, there's a celebration this coming Friday at Florino, so you'll be hearing about that. If you haven't let us know that you've done that, make sure you put that on your response card because we're emailing only the people that have told us that they've finished reading through the Bible in 2010. So when you read the Bible and take it seriously, some things emerge from Scripture that captures your attention, such as you can know God. You can know the creator and king of the universe. And I'm not talking about in some esoteric, fourth dimension, netherworld kind of way. I'm talking about personally, you can know God through Jesus Christ. So that's one thing that we're going to be talking about these next few weeks is that it's very personal when it comes to knowing God. Another theme that emerges from Scripture is that we have the responsibility on this planet as human beings to live in community, to live in peace, to serve one another. Uh, One of the things that uh, this church is so remarkable about is the way that we want to serve other people. I mean, the number of you that showed up on Christmas morning to help feed the homeless, that's just a remarkable testimony to your belief that helping other people Connecting with other people, it's very personal. You take that personally. Romans 12, 18 says it this way. If it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. So we want to connect with other human beings on this planet. We accept personal responsibility to be in community with other people. Remember we talked about in our series before this, the thing that matters most above all else is to love God and love people. Love God and love people. And for those of us who read the Bible and understand it and believe it, we take that very personally. We love people. Another theme, important theme in the Bible is growth. Second uh, Peter 3.18 says it this way, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. At Hope Covenant Church, one of our greatest desires, one of our highest values is that we want to see you grow in your faith. Now, we can't make you grow. That's not possible. Uh, One human being can't make another human being believe or think something they don't want to. But I'll tell you what we will do for you. We will do our very best, myself and the staff and the elders of Hope Covenant Church, we'll do our very best to offer you a banquet of food and drink 
that will satisfy your soul. Whether it's sermons on Sunday morning, worship on Sunday morning, home Bible studies, small groups, Bible studies here at church, other opportunities to uh, get deep into God's word. We promise you that we will set the table with a feast of food for you. And then we simply bid you come and eat. Uh, the personal, you have to take personal responsibility for your growth. We can help by providing Bible studies and sermons and those kinds of things. But when you say it's personal, you're saying, you know what? In 2011, I am personally taking responsibility of my spiritual growth. I'm not going to wait for somebody else to do it for me. I'm personally taking responsibility for my personal growth. So it's, it's personal. Also, when you read the Bible... Uh, you recognize that there's a theme throughout Scripture that is our personal responsibility to help those who are in need. Brokenhearted, the abused, the disenfranchised, the lonely. That's what Becky said in her uh, little video clip that you saw this morning. We take personally... Uh, people that are hurting and broken in our community, in our world. That's why we do the ministry with the Navajo. That's why we're doing ministry with other peoples in the world. We, we take it personally when people in our community go through experiences that are really painful. We, we take that personally. We want to do something about it. First John 3, verses 6 and 16 and 17, we read these words. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? It's an important question that John asks. When God has blessed us with so much, how can we not reach out and give to those who have so little? That's one of the reasons that we feed the homeless on Christmas morning. We take personally... The idea when somebody is broken, when somebody is lonely, when somebody is poor, when somebody is disenfranchised, when somebody is hurting, we take that personally. And as far as it's possible with us, we'll do everything we can to help that situation. And there's one last thing we take personally. People who are far from God. Every time I meet someone or I have someone in my family or my circle of friends that I know doesn't know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, I take that personally. I feel it deep within my soul. I feel a stirring within me that, what can I do? How can I leverage who I am? And how can I leverage of what I know to invite that person into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? My life's verse, and you've heard it many times before, Galatians 4.19, For I am ever in labor until Christ be formed in you. I feel like a woman in childbirth. I feel that pain deep inside of me when someone says no to God. No, no, no. And I I don't want to do anything in my power to help them understand that, that Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. We had a uh, get-together last week in San Diego. The first church that I served was Mount McGill Covenant Church from 1978 to 1985. And a group of people we were part of, we called ourselves the Young Marrieds. Well, we still call ourselves the Young Marrieds. And even though we're all in our 50s and 60s. So we got together and we had a little party uh, one night. And one of the gals, her name is Mary Rothman, has leveraged her husband, owns several uh, haircut stores in Southern California. 
and has made a lot of money. But she has leveraged her wealth to minister to teenage girls who are in crisis. And she has seen literally hundreds of teenage girls come to Jesus Christ. That's what I'm talking about when we take personally the fact that 80% of Chandler doesn't go to church anywhere. You know, people say, well, boy, you have these big mega churches over on Alma School. We don't have nearly enough churches in Chandler, believe me. When 80% of our population still never darkens a church door, there's much work to be done. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who have still never heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And you know what? I take that personally. And do you know why I do? Because God does. God's heart aches. It hurts every time he sees one person that says no, no, no to God. It, It hurts me. And it should hurt you as well. One of our, in fact, our highest value as a church is that we will do anything in our power as a church, as a congregation, we will do anything in our power to reach one more person for Jesus. I take that personally. God takes that personally. I know many of you take that personally. To us, it's personal. Christmas Eve, over 20 people raised their hands to pray and receive Christ. Um, That is something that is to be celebrated above everything else. We take it personally. So that's what we'll be looking at in these coming weeks. Each of those areas we take very personally. And my prayer for each of you is that you will take your relationship with Jesus and your relationship with other people more personally than ever before. Today we're looking at what it means to have a personal, intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking at today. This idea of intimacy with God, I take that, and I trust that you take that very, very personally. And I've selected a passage of Scripture that really speaks to this from 1 John chapter 5. Um, and actually starts in verse John chapter 4, verse 7. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. But we'll put that up on the screen. It's also in your sermon notes. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. I'll read the first four verses, but this text, uh, you can read it at home later, goes on all the way through chapter 5, verse 3, the whole context. So uh, let me read now God's word to you. And this is what it means that my, my relationship with God, I take very personally. So with that context, listen to the words of John. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, what John says about love, and you hear it over and over again, is quite simply this. God is love. His essence, his character, his personality, everything starts and ends with love. And here's the important part that John is describing and what I want to share with you today. That love that is the essence of God That love has been set upon you. That love has been put on you. Now, we talked about a couple weeks ago 
that in the book of Jeremiah it says, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Remember that? And what that meant in the Hebrew was that the word of the Lord happened to Jeremiah. See, Christianity isn't just something that's out there that you kind of tend to believe in your head. Christianity is something that happens to you. The word of the Lord happened to Jeremiah. And in this text, uh, John is saying basically the same thing. The love of God has happened to you. It's been, it's been set upon you. God is the initiator. And driven by his own love for us, he has pursued us and was willing to pay an enormous price, the life of his own son, to win us, to reconcile us, to redeem us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16. What a glorious message. And the good news is this. That if we have the courage to open our hearts and step in and receive this love from God, we experience what the um, theologian Frederick Beekner calls the furious love of God. Now let that settle in for a moment. It's a very odd way of saying it. But again, theologic, uh, he's a German theologian. Frederick Beekner said, when, when you experience God's love fully, you experience the furious love of God, the overwhelming love. Of, now talk about personal. That's not some God that's out in the outer space somewhere. That's not God that simply dwells vaguely in a church. That is a very personal, set upon, in your face, embrace you kind of love that comes from God. Now, that love will change us. That love will transform us in very distinct ways found in this First John 4 text. So if you press into this love, if you experience this furious love of God, um, several things will happen to you. The first thing that happens to you is this. And talk about personal, listen to this. It will transform who you are. It'll change your identity. Did you know that? That when you experience the furious love of God, it will transform who you are as a person. It will change your identity. That's amazing to me. Ephesians 2.13, we read these words. But now in Christ Jesus, you were once far away. You have, been, you have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2.13. You used to be far away. I talked about this on Christmas Eve. You used to be far away. And uh, our sin that we have chosen to commit, not somebody's made us do, but we have chosen to commit sin, has built a wall between us and God. Okay, that's a, a barrier, a wall, it says in Ephesians. And, and when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the work that he did on the cross and then the resurrection from the dead was, was to literally obliterate, destroy that wall so that there's no barrier between us and God. Now, the only barrier between us and God now is if we say no, if we turn our back on God, it's the only barrier. God has removed all barriers so that there's no hostility between us. Whereas sin once separated us, now we are near God. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you, the Father said. Our relationship, our identity is brand new. We are no longer hidden from God. Sin hides people from God. We are no longer hidden from God. We are no longer unseen. We are no longer unknown. If we have the courage and trust God to step into this love relationship, what Beekner calls the furious love of God, it will change us. It will change who we are. 
But it'll do something else. It'll also change how we live. So, well, how does experiencing this love of God change how we live? Well, a lot of ways you will experience purity. The Bible says joy, peace with men and with God. You'll experience confidence and a destiny that has been settled uh, long ago and your destiny in heaven has been settled. All of those things will change your life. But more than all of that, there's one thing that it changes above all other things. And it's this. No more fear. No more fear. Now let me tell you what I mean by that. We, um, years ago, we had a couple in our church, an elderly couple, Oscar and Marcel Powers. How many remember Oscar and Marcel? Okay, quite a few of you. Wonderful couple. Both of them found Christ in our church. Uh, both of them found Christ when we were in the strip mall back in 2000. And so this elderly, older, elderly couple, they're learning about their faith. And one thing that always bothered Marcel is she was afraid of death. She was afraid of dying. And I used to explain to her and other people in our church, she said, but Marcel, when you're in Christ... There's nothing to be afraid of. And you would try and outline how that... And, and towards the end of her life, she, she gained that joy of being fearless about death and recognizing that death really is a doorway to something amazing. Death is a doorway to life everlasting. And so she experienced it. And that's what I'm talking about when I talk about no more fear. Listen to 1 John 4:18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So here this no more fear. When we experience this furious love of God, it changes how we live. We're no longer motivated by fear. We're no longer obeying God simply to avoid punishment. To get a, a get out of hell free card or to avoid, uh, you know, some of the, the fiery pits of hell. That's not why we experience the love of God. We no longer obey God simply to avoid punishment. I wonder how many of us know, knows how that feels. As children, children might know this. I remember when I was a little boy, I was afraid of my father. Um, I loved him, but I was afraid of him. And uh, I, I wasn't always motivated by what will I do to show my dad love. Sometimes I was when I got older and I understood it. But mostly when I was a little kid, I was motivated by not getting spanked. Because my dad, his hand weighed about as much as I did. And when he spanked me, I stayed spanked for a while. And so, so, but but that, that kind of motivated me, motivated me to obey, you know, and to do the right thing. And, and as I got older, I, I internalized that and I became obedient to God, but I remember really being afraid of my dad more than anything else. Children might be compliant and eager to please out of fear, not because they feel pursued by love, by love, not because they've been called or drawn into or nurtured or transformed by love. They, they obey simply for fear of what will happen if they don't. I had an experience when I was a sophomore in high school um, I had two teachers, actually uh, one teacher and a coach. Uh, my teacher was um, Ralph White, who taught United States history. And it was my first foray into history as a sophomore. I also had, as my football coach, Mr. TB. And Mr. TB was a mean, 
you know what. And he was, you know, that's in those days, the coaches were, you know, how mean are you? Okay, you're a coach, uh, you know, and no water during practice, all that kind of thing. And, and he was just, but I was motivated by both of these men to be compliant and obedient and do my very best. Mr. TB, I was motivated out of fear. He had the ability to take me off of the varsity. He had the ability to not play me in games. He had the ability to, to really abuse me verbally in a practice. He had the ability to do all of that. I was motivated out of fear more than anything else. But Mr. White, Mr. White loved me. And he helped me to learn to love history. I remember him talking to me. He sent a note to my parents, a personal note, telling them how, what a good student I was. And I was motivated out of love to do my very best for him. There's a big difference between being motivated by fear and motivated by love. Brendan Manning, who's the author of the Ragamuffin Gospel, one of his many books, was doing research in the Deep South, especially Mississippi and uh, Florida. And a uh, hundred years ago, the phrase, at least in the South, in the Deep South, uh, the phrase born again, which is a biblical phrase, wasn't used uh, at all. In fact, it wasn't used familiarly in all of Christendom, even though it was a biblical, a biblical word. So the word born again wasn't used. But what he discovered when, especially the slaves in the South and, and, and other people that, believed, that loved Jesus uh, and, and had been changed by the power of Jesus Christ. Here's what they said about themselves. They said, well, I've been seized by the power of a great affection. I love that. I've been seized by the power of a great affection. No, I'm not just going to obey somebody because they have the power of life over me. Maybe I will obey out of fear, but to be seized by the power of a great affection. That's, that's a whole different category of love. That's something that I, I want to embrace. I want to be a part of that. I don't want to be a part of being afraid of God, that He's going to step on me if I do something wrong, if He's going to shame me if I, if I go turn away. I don't want to be part of a God like that. I want to be a part of a God who, where I'm seized by the power of a great affection. See, this shows initiative by God and the explosive nature of transformation. It's so different than I'm afraid God will disapprove of me or send me to hell. It's a big difference between that and I have been seized by the power of a great affection. It's a completely different way to live. Completely different way to live. Being seized by the power of a great affection gives new meaning to the old Russian proverb that these who have the disease called Jesus, will never be cured. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want that disease. Those who have been seized by the power of a great affection, those who have been seized by Jesus' love, not out of fear, but out of this amazing, furious, transforming love, I want that disease. Because when you open your heart to and step into and receive the furious love of God, it changes who you are. And it changes how you live. I no longer live in fear. I no longer am afraid that if I don't do the list, that God is going to be disapprove of me and, and send me to hell. I no longer live that way. But there's something else that happens when we take this intimacy with God personally. It's this. It changes how you love 
and why you obey. It is the very personal nature of a relationship with God. 1 John 5, 3, we read these words. In fact, this is love for God to keep His commands and His commands are not burdensome. Now, you notice it didn't say if you do His commands, then God will love you. <laughs> That's the way many Christians live today out of fear. Oh, if I don't do what's right, if I don't obey God, if I don't do the checklist, God's going to hate me. He's going to disown me. He's not going to love me. I talked to one person on Christmas Eve who had given their, hearts to, their heart to Christ. And this man said, when I grew up in a certain church, I was told that if I didn't do the right thing, I would go to hell. Tonight's the first night I've ever heard that God loves me for who I am. Exactly the way I am. He loves me. Notice it said in 1 John 5.3 that commandments are not burdensome. Usually we think of the commandments as a list of to-dos. But they are things that we do for love if we take John's word seriously, not for fear. It's the same behavior, but completely different motivations. What are the things that, what are the things that you do for love? You just do them for love. I mean... When I first met Sherry, I was a completely different person than I am today. I mean, the things I do for love. I go to Shakespeare. That's right, I do. I eat Indian food. Not happily, but I eat it. I go to tea parties. I watch chick flicks. But to Sherry's credit, the other night she went and saw True Grit with me, so we're even. I watch chick flicks. And when Cherry says, honey, I have an idea. Let's have a hundred people over to our house for dinner. How about that? And I say, okay, where's the, where's the weed and feed? Where's the mower? You know, what do I do now? See, the things that you do for love. For love, you stay up all night with a sick child. You never think about your own sleep. You simply do it because you love the child. For love, my father and grandfather, I've told you that story, drove all night from San Diego to Denver, Colorado, to be at my ordination back in, the ni- in 1976. For love, we had a bunch of people show up at church on Christmas morning and put food together for feeding the homeless. It's, well, it's the kind of thing you do for love. You don't do it because you're afraid God will be unhappy with you. You don't do it because you're afraid that He'll scold you or tell you that you are bad for not going to feed the homeless. You Simply do it because, well, it's what you want to do to show love. See, that's what it means that God's commandments are not burdensome. They're not a heavy load. Now, I'm not talking about the Christian life being easy. In fact, I preached a sermon on this. The Christian life is the most wonderful life in the world. And the Christian life is the most difficult life in the world. And it's both. And it will always be both. So I'm not talking about light and easy breezy. I'm talking about significant work that we do to express love to other people because of this overwhelming love that we have experienced, this furious love in our lives that simply transforms us. See, it's easier to have an arrangement with God, isn't it? It's kind of like um, living with God without being married to God, you know. I, you know, you, you have all the benefits, at least you think, of, of living with God, and you come to God's house, and it's all good. You give God a, a peck on the cheek once in a while, let Him know that you care, and, 
And, and, and it's, it's, but, but basically, if God does something you don't like, you're out of there. You know, if God, if somebody, if some Christian does something that offends you, you're out of there. You know, there's just no level of commitment there. But God says, I, I want something more than just living together. I mean, I, I want big love. I want big passion. I, I don't want to live together. I, I want to be married to you. I want more than a kiss in the cheek. I want commitment because love costs. Love says you can count on me. First John 4.16 says it this way. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Remember those two words. We know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. We know and rely on the love God has for us. That kind of love can come on strong. That kind of love is learning how to live together in marriage with a commitment with God. I mean, that's a whole different thing than just a kiss on the cheek and a pat on the behind once in a while. That's a whole different level of commitment, a whole different kind of love. Let's be honest. It's much easier to be religious. Religion is pretty easy. Here's a list of things to do. Do it or fry. It's up to you. Do it or go to hell. You know, it's up to you. That's religion. Here's the list of things. Do the check marks. Make sure you've got everything checked off. You do that, you're good. Okay, you're, you're good to go. The problem with that religion is what? We can never do the list. We do maybe six of them. Why couldn't God said, I'm going to give you six commandments, you know, and whichever four you don't like, you throw those out, do the other six. Then it'd be easier to follow God. But no, no, no. Religion is about just a checklist, not, you know, doing all. That's pretty easy. Do this, what's in this box, do that, and you're okay. You're covered. But the kind of love I'm talking about today is not, is not religion. It's about a deep and intimate relationship that is passionate, is furious, that is overwhelming at times. It comes on strong. It's much easier to be religious. But this kind of passion that God has placed on me, this kind of love that God has set upon me, like the hymn writer Isaac Watts says in When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, said, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul what? My life, my all. Demands my soul, my life, my all. Well, you know what? Sometimes I'm not sure I want that kind of love. Sometimes I, I, I fall back into the pattern of I'll just be religious for a while. I'll just do the list. It's easier. At least I know where I stand. But, but this kind of overwhelming, passionate, furious love that God has set upon me. Uh, he died for me. If I was the only human being on this planet, he would have died for my sins alone. That kind of love is, that's unsettling to me. Consider this. The Word of God employs a wide scale of metaphors to explain our relationship with him. And uh, those of you who are familiar with the Bible could even tick some off in your heads right now. But I went through and just picked out a few that kind of representative of the kind of relationship that the Bible talks about with his creation. And there's kind of a, an escalating uh, intimacy when you start from the bottom and move to the top. And let me give you some examples of that. You'll notice there's this uh, almost noticeable and powerful uh, progression on the intensity of the relationship. And when we get to the end, you're going to know what I'm talking about. 
So let me explain some ways that we have a relationship with God. All of these are legitimate, and you may be at any number of these places, but you'll recognize these. There's the, uh, uh, God said, I'm the potter, you're the clay. Okay, now we say that. Yeah, I understand that. Um, I'm a lump, <laughs> and I'm not very malleable, <laughs> and I'm not very cooperative at times. I understand that. So, God, you're the potter. Do with me what you will. Take me, form me, pull me apart, break me, do whatever you need to do. So that's, that's an important part of my relationship with God. That was kind of the relationship I had before I came to Christ. You know, I had to admit that I wasn't God and he was. And so, yeah, the potter and the clay, but... God can do with me whatever he wants, but but it's not very personal. I mean, I'm just a lump of clay. But then you progress to a different metaphor, and the next metaphor would be, uh, he is the shepherd, and we are the sheep. Okay, now that's a little bit better, right? Um, It's kind of a move, a notch up the food chain. Still not very complimentary of us, because sheep are neither graceful nor intelligent. (laughs) But the shepherd loves me, and that's good. And there are times when I simply... Respond to that. So that, that's, and then you move up in the metaphor, and the next one you find is Jesus said, I am the master and you are the servant. Now, I, I respond to this one on a very visceral level because I believe in serving and I love to serve. And so I kind of live in this metaphor a lot. I don't mind being a servant. I, I want to hear the words, good done, well done, my good and faithful servant. I want to hear those words from Jesus. But, uh, the problem with being a servant and a master is that uh, it's not very personal. Now, it's better, granted, than being a lump of clay. I understand that. And it's better than being a dumb animal. I like that. Because as a servant, you, at least you get in the house, right? You get in the house, but you don't live there. My role is clear as a servant. I obey my orders. I, I keep the list. I'm very religious. I, 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 I do nice. I I won't get fired if I do the right things. I, uh, it's easy to understand. Clean up the house, and, and after you've cleaned up the house, be sure and leave the house and lock the door behind you because you don't really live here. But then you move up to another metaphor. At John's epistle, we found this one, and it's beyond clay and beyond sheep and beyond servants. Um, we are his children, and he is our Abba. Now, that's personal. That's very personal. Which brings with it the possibility of an entirely different way to live. Because as children and our Abba, our Father, now I belong. Now I live at the house with God. I sit at the table. Love is not something the clay and potter share. Nor does the sheep really know the heart of the shepherd, though he may enjoy the fruits of the shepherd's kindness. And the master may like you and pat you on the head, give you a day off, even give you a bonus, but all the master really owes the servant is pay on payday. But a son, a daughter, see, now I matter to God. I have access I belong to him. But it ascends even further than this. Now I call you my friend, Jesus said. Jesus said to his disciples, friendship levels the playing field. 
Now I am taking my place alongside Jesus. In the work of the kingdom of God, we are working together to reach people for Christ, to help those who are broken. But the highest and deepest and most exhilarating metaphor in Scripture that I've ever seen or known, and the most important metaphor for our relationship with God is when Jesus said, we are the bride and Jesus is the groom. We, the church of Jesus Christ, are the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom. What kind of love is that? And what does that kind of love demand? In Ephesians 1, God lets us in on a little secret. For we have been more than noticed. We have been pursued farther than space and longer than time because God had you in his heart before the foundation of the world. And that is why he came for us to be with us and not just a God. For he said, I... I want to know you more than a clay knows the potter or a sheep with a shepherd or a servant with a master or even a child with a parent, a friend with a peer, but he has called us to be with him as a bride is with her groom. And friends, we have to ask the question, what kind of furious love is that? He wants a deeply intimate relationship. How did he provide for this? when we were far away in disobedience, deserving of death, every one of us, he stole away from heaven and the darkness of night became a baby. So we just celebrated at Christmas. He grew to be a man and it became, the Bible says, sin for us. God's only son died that we might live. What kind of love is this? This is the furious love of God. He wants you. He wants your laughter. He wants your fears. He wants your tears. He wants your joys, your love. And he died. He died to get it. This kind of love is very personal. It is very intimate. It's not religion. Don't hope for religion here at Hope Covenant Church. But it is a relationship that is powerful and furious and at times scary and very real. It's not a contract, but communion. Communion of the heart and of the soul. Your relationship with God, every one of us here today, your relationship with God, my relationship with God, it's personal. Would you bow your heads with me, please?